Well, this has been quite a year for Gail and me. Um, on this past Wednesday, and I'm going to sit down for some of this. <laughs> on this past Wednesday, um, I was uh, bitten pretty severely by a dog when I was out on my walk. And it took me to the ER, and there's blood all over, and, and it's pretty deep into the, into the calf. And uh, in the course of uh, taking care of me, the, uh, the technician there asked a little bit about my medical history. What's been going on? Well, well, there, there was a knee surgery in April. Uh, that's coming along pretty well. Um, and then broken ribs uh, in June. Um, that, that I slipped in the shower. That one was on me. Um, and, and then three weeks ago, shingles started. And then this week it was the dog bite. And, um, and it, it, it struck me that uh, these together are, are kind of daunting. Um, and you get tired. But um, it is the world in which we live. And we're talking about suffering today. And we're talking about suffering that comes in two di- from two different directions. Once it is the fa- what we call fallen world suffering. Just because we live here, now. But then there is also following Jesus, suffering, something quite different, uh, suffering for the sake of Jesus uh, in a world that is full of darkness. But both of them, Westminster Confession states, uh, God uses things such as these to chasten us. And here's what you need to remember. The goal for both kinds of suffering, our response to both kinds of suffering is the same. And let me read from Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are being led by the Spirit in the direction of holiness, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, it is pretty easy uh, to react to a string of incidences like I've had or that you've had uh, and call it bad luck. And when you sort of depersonalize it like that, uh, it becomes really easy to indulge in self-pity. You can indulge in feeling deserted. You can even say, my life is out of control. But our text says, knowing your identity carries you. You feel, you, you know that you are adopted. You are well lo- a well-loved child. You are under God's constant care. And these sufferings that we go through really are opportunities to strengthen our faith and to thank God. Suffering is an opportunity to strengthen your faith in Christ through the Spirit and to thank God. Now, last week, uh, we looked at some of the blessings that we enjoy in adoption. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We're not going into fear again. You have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Last week then, fear doesn't control you. 
You live boldly. And you pray boldly. We also saw last week there are social benefits that come from adoption. That is, if I'm adopted by the Lord, I'm a child, and if you're a child, that makes us siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, which in fact is the dominant, the predominant description of Christians in the New Testament. We're in this together. Not one of us has to handle the challenges of life alone. We are close enough to ask for help. We're moving to verse 17 today. Adoption makes us heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Now in Paul's day, uh, a wealthy uh, Roman who observed that he did not have an adequate heir, either one that was not competent or he had no male heir, could, uh, and often did, adopt one of his servants who had shown competency and ability. He would adopt this, this servant, make him a son, with all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. Since I have been in New Jersey in these 13-plus years, I have had the privilege to be in the courtroom on two different occasions to observe a child being adopted into one of the families of this church. It is an amazing thing to behold. In a dramatic moment, the judge rules that this child will no longer have their old name, but will have a new name. And he rules as well, and I had never even thought of this. He rules as well, or she rules as well, that this child is... um, fully uh, deserving and, and liable to the, um, the um, inheritance of her parents. Equal with a son or a daughter naturally born. You've got a great inheritance. Whatever your parents leave, your new parents now leave you. That is guaranteed by law. Now, um, imagine you are called into the a lawyer's office and a very rich aunt has died and it crosses your mind that you're a little short on cash, hard paying the mortgage, hard paying the rent, and you think you deserve a vacation to equal that of your wealthier friends. Uh, you would like to have financial security, so it occurs to you, along with everyone else in that room, that you would like a good slice of this inheritance. You can feel the family tension in that office. The the lawyer finally uh, brings that tension uh, to, uh, that suspense to an end, uh, but it hardly ends the bickering. And imagine that you're described as the one person in the room to receive the entire inheritance. Every penny of your aunt. An amazing thing. When we think of being heirs of God, it is easy to think about being heirs of wealth, heirs of riches. Peter puts it this way, you're an heir of that which will never perish, fade, spoil, uh, or, um, well, fade away. And we think of Jerusalem that has walls of jasper that just sparkle in the sun, in the light of God. We see this city of, of pure gold that is pure glass. 
and is described as having, having gates to this massive city that are, the gates are, are actually one large pearl. Imagine that. This is opulence to, a, to an amazing degree. It's unimaginable wealth. But John Murray, I think, is more to the point when he says the inheritance is likely not stuff, but God himself. Remember, there are 11 tribes that inherited parts of the land of Canaan. Um, and and uh, but uh, the original uh, of the original twelve tribes, but the Levites did not. They were servants in the temple. So what was their inheritance? Moses tells us this in the Pentateuch that the Lord the Lord was their inheritance. The psalmist puts it this way: Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. God is our inheritance. But more than that, or along with that, our inheritance is also being like our older brother. John says this, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's your inheritance, being like Jesus when you see him. Paul puts it this way, we are part of that bride. It is a bride, Ephesians 5, that is without spot, without wrinkle, that is holy and without blemish. In fact, the very promise of this text in verse 17 is that we will be glorified with him. He suffers, he is glorified, and we share in both the glory of God. Now, this is coming from an English major, so I'm kind of proud of this next statement. And that is a, it's a mathematical term. You get the glory, remember your math class, IFF, if and only if. You, only, there's a condition. You get the glory only if and only if you also suffer with him. Knowing that you're an heir in line for God himself knowing that you're an heir and will be like Jesus, helps you in very practical, lovely ways right now. Last week again, we saw this, live and pray as children of God. Today, it's, it's suffer, uh, live and pray as children of God by faith. Today, it is, it is suffer by faith as children of God. Suffer by faith as children of God. Well, as a child of God, you are first of all in Jesus, so suffering is necessary. Because you are in Jesus, suffering is necessary. What does the Bible say about Jesus in his suffering? In, in Luke 24, uh, on the road to Emmaus, it says Jesus opened up their minds to be able to understand the scriptures which said Christ must suffer. And on the third day arise. Suffering and then glory. He must do that. At the midpoint of each one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at the midpoint of each gospel, there is a, there is a revelation, there is a clarity. You are the Christ of God. And from that point on, in all of those three gospels, it is repeated 
and he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. And yes, he must be raised on the third day. It's always death now and glory later. And for you, as co-heirs with Christ, you also share in his suffering now and glory later. Jesus makes this very clean. This is suffering. This is following Jesus' suffering. John 15, the world hated me. It will hate you because servants are not greater than their master. They will persecute you too. So our older brother shined light into a dark world. Count on it. If you shine light into a dark world, you will get pushback. You will be called a misogynist, one who hates women. If the life of an unborn child to you is more important than allowing a mother to choose to destroy her child, you will be despised. If a stone would be handy, you would probably get stoned. You will also be called transphobic if you say that God created humankind, male and female, and there is no crossover. Once you're created, your sex is your gender. Blasphemy today, because it assaults the individual expression that any individual would like to have. You will will take heat for that. You will be called a Neanderthal if you believe that God created the world. And therefore, that we owe him obedience. You can also stand for righteousness in the church. And even among Christians, you may be despised for the sake of righteousness. You will suffer following Jesus. Because you are in Jesus, you will suffer. Secondly, though, because you are like Jesus, your suffering has a purpose. Take heart. You're like Jesus, so your suffering is purposeful. Remember, even Jesus in his suffering had a goal, it had a a purpose, it perfected him. Uh, Although he was his son, um, Hebrews says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He, he, He learned obedience. He didn't escape temptation because he was God. In fact, his temptations were as real as yours. In fact, his temptations were harder than yours. Because you give in to yours, and he never gave in to his. They were hard to the very end. He never caved in, not once, like we do every day. And so when he had finished this course of suffering, he was made as the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling all righteousness and able to serve in our place on the cross. This is the obedience of Jesus. But let's look behind it just a little bit and see the dependence of Jesus. This is how Jesus thought. This is how Jesus spoke of his Father and to his Father. I do nothing on my own accord. I only do what my Father has commanded me to do, and I only say what my Father has commanded me to say. No one prayed the way Jesus did in complete and daily dependence. Can you imagine if you had an employer an employee, someone working for you or some, a friend of yours, and you would ask this person a question, perhaps to do something for you in the line of duty. And, and if he would say to you, wait, I'll go ask my dad, you would think you are dealing with the most infantile and immature of all people. 
But he prayed, Jesus prayed more than any person, and he had to depend on the Spirit himself. And so it is that your suffering has a purpose. Your obedience, um, uh, obedience is for him. These words, suffering sanctifies. Suffering sanctifies. Let me, let me modify that. Suffering can sanctify. You can respond in faith. You can respond in faith and trust and humility and you will have sweet courage of obedience. Or uh, you can, in the response to your suffering, become hard and cynical and bitter and be filled with self-pity and anger. You are not being sanctified. Listen to these, these comforting and, and directing words of Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces something. Suffering works. It works. It produces endurance. But then endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And that hope never disappoints because the love of God is poured out from the Spirit onto us. In this suffering obedience, the Spirit pours out the Father's love from on high. Your obedience matters. It is obedience for Him. Your suffering sanctifies you by faith. But let's go back again to the idea of dependence. (laughs) You who are parents, think that you have succeeded. You have succeeded in your parenting if as your child grows, they depend on you less and less. They're not asking for money. They're making their own. They're not, they're not even living with you, perhaps. They're in their, in their own home. They get married and so forth. They move, move away. That is, that is maturity. Um, and then it turns around and you need them. But that's, that's okay. That's good too. So we, we equate maturity with self-sufficiency. Get a job and stand on your own. That's what we think of as maturity. Christian maturity is exactly the opposite of that. Christian maturity is being more dependent, not less. It is needing God more, not less. It is talking to God more, not less. A writer I read this week, I think this is on point, sanctification can be indicated by by using the fact that you're using more words to talk to God. You're talking to him more. You spend more time in the word, not less. And you may stick, stick some Bible verses in your pocket or put them on the dashboard of your car because this is like taking your IV pole that's got a bag of drip in it and it's, and it's connected to your arm and you're just never far from it. You're getting that gospel drip every day because you need it, because you're dependent on God. And there is a purpose for all of this. And that is that we now live for Jesus. For Jesus. So as a child, you are bold in suffering. Uh, This is Christ-shaped suffering. Listen, the lamb who was on the cross was also a lion. And the lion disarmed uh, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross so that you can be bold in your suffering. Satan never has the last word. You can be bold in your suffering.
courageous in your suffering. And the only way, I think, the only way to be bold in your suffering, the only way that this is even possible, is, is for two things to be going on. For you daily to be going deeper with Jesus. For you daily to be going deeper with Jesus. We know the call from Philippians. It says, Christ and the power of his resurrection. And uh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. I want to know Jesus' resurrection and I want to know his sufferings. I want to know both of them. And yet, when we face, when we face suffering, um, I would say that every one of us here has a challenge, a particular challenge that you need to make to yourself. And that is to challenge your own false narrative. Your own, you are, we tend to interpret wrongly the things that are going on in our lives. And there is one way in which I guarantee you that every one of us misinterprets in this respect. Every one of us misinterprets in this respect. And that is, um, we, are, we are tempted to believe that God, simply put, is not as good as he says he is. We may be tempted to believe that he has forgotten us for a bit. He has, uh, he has something against us or he doesn't care about us in our suffering. Or we may believe that there's no way possible that there could be a good outcome to this suffering and so I'm going to stay angry about it. In all of these things, you are buying into a false narrative. And the worst part about it, you are bearing false witness against yourself and against God. You're speaking the untruth to yourself about God, and you are speaking an untruth to God. So what do we do with that? We, we feed our soul instead so that we hear, on our hardest of days, we hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit witnessing with our, with our spirit that we are children of God. We have been listening to a false narrative, and what we need to remember is the truth. 